This is not the media. This is hell. I remember singing that in Catholic Church as a kid, but we sang it in Latin. When humans and nature collide, bad things happen. Okay, not all of the time. Sometimes good things can happen, like invasive species that actually bring stability back to shorelines that are devastated by rising water due to climate change. Yeah, that that can happen, but throughout history, when humans and non-humans have made contact, have interacted, bad things, really bad things, usually happen, like extinctions, rats, plagues, pandemics, and waste, including remnants of human-made plastics, microscopic microplastics, which end up in the food supply of aquatic life around the world. Too often that history of contact is peppered with events where humans, busy with the conquest and domination of colonialism, did not consider the harm that they might be doing to the planet, its indigenous peoples, or the planet's plant and non-human life forms. Instead, the colonizers tried to change the old world they were invading into what they saw as their modern, ordered European world, literally imposing their new world, a world which, ironically, they were fleeing upon an old world in the Americas, which had not yet been corrupted by capital and the market. And then there's colonialism's remake, Globalization, which seems to have the same lack of care for doing harm to the planet and all its life, human and non-human alike. Today we are taking a deep, or having a deep discussion on what happens when humans and nature collide when we have the return of anthropologist Anna Tsing, editor and uh, curator of Feral Atlas, the more than human Anthropocene, which Anna created along with Jennifer Dagger, Alder Kellerman Saxena, and Feifei Zhao. Anna is professor of anthropology at the University of California, Santa Cruz, and is the recipient of a Guggenheim Fellowship and a Niels Bohr Professorship for a multi-year project on the Anthropocene. Anna was on her show back in 2015 to talk about her then-just-released book, The Mushroom at the End of the World on the Possibility of Life in Catalyst Ruins. An interview you can hear right now on our website, thisishell.com, when you search on Sing. But listen to the rest of today's episode, then go listen to our interview from 2015 with Anna Singh. Again, her last name is T-S-I-N-G. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, podcast, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this morning's show, if it's Wednesday, it must be Richard Norwood. Richard, how have you been, sir? I've been well. How are you, sir? Good. Anything new in your world? Happy Veterans Day. Yes. <laughs> As a veteran, you fought in Nam for how long? You did, what, two, three tours of duty there? <laughs> Six months. <laughs> and how was it? Enjoyable? Not at all. <laughs> uh, did you uh, survive the storm? Uh, the Which storm are you talking about? The election storm or the huge storm we had yesterday? That storm was pretty intense yesterday. Oh, my did, God, yes. Did you get any – did it touch down anywhere? You, you no, I mean, we got a lot of wind and rain, but nothing crazy. They put new flashing up on the Slumlord's building next door, and uh, all night long I was just waiting for that. It was just that. rattling. Oh, it was rattling, and I was waiting for it to fly off their building and go through our window. So <laughs> it was really bad. But, Richard, more importantly yes. than anything – what is this week's question from hell? Uh, this week's question from hell is, so what's for brunch? <laughs> Such a weird question from hell. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell, 
Uh, so what's for brunch wins our new gray and black this is hell t-shirt you can check out the new gray and black this is hell t-shirt and all our merchandise right now by going to this is hell.com and clicking on support when you will where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener supported this is hell remember without you we got nothing so thanks to all of you for your support you can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our facebook page facebook.com slash this is hell radio or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at This Is Hell Radio. You can email it to me at Chuck at This Is Hell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of Thursday's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth. During this week's Moment of Truth, Jeff leans on survivor bias, which is a moment of truth he was supposed to be reading on last week's show, but unfortunately I got sick. Richard will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell again. So uh, what's for brunch? What's for brunch? And if you don't understand why we're asking you that question from hell this week, just go to our Facebook page and check out the image that Alex shared with the question from hell and you'll get it. Email us your answers, Chuck at thisishell.com. Facebook them to us, DM us uh, your answers via Twitter, whatever, and we'll be reading them later on today's show. Like Richard said, Happy Veterans Day, everybody. Veterans Day is the day of the year where, here in the States, we erase the end of a war. The end of the war that was supposed to end all wars. We dismiss a celebration of the end of war, a commemoration of peace, with a day that honors people who served in the military, who actually fought in wars, to show them respect and admire them for what they have done, namely being forced to kill other people, by their government. I am not physically capable of being in the military, but I am certainly not going to get on a high horse and say that I would not kill, given the circumstances of war, or allow myself to be killed out of complete moral desperation. But what I have learned from talking to veterans is they do not want to be admired for or reminded of whatever killing they have done. Sure, they have may, may have had some good times while in the military, but not the killing part. And yes, they did sacrifice years of their young adult life. And a lot of it was probably very boring, almost like doing a work release sentence. Yet, while I cannot say I'm certain of many things, but one thing I am nearly certain of is that veterans right now want to celebrate peace and not glorify war as the media will be doing all day and has been doing all week. So no, I do not celebrate Veterans Day. On November 11th, I commemorate Armistice Day, the day when a truce was signed that ended a war, a war that humanity hoped would end all wars, but alas, did not. Instead, here we are, 102 years later. Not only have all wars not ended, but nowadays wars never stop, as we are engaged in a forever war taking place in close to a dozen countries around the world. We don't even know how many countries at this point, because war has become so secretive. A war that is now in its 20th year, at the very least. You might even date it back to the first Gulf War, so it could be as long as 30 years old now. And yesterday on CNN, Pentagon reporter Barbara Starr was worried, visibly worried and shaken, that President Trump might call all the troops home, ending all of our current wars, ending the forever war. Starr seemed frightened at how this might affect U.S. global dominance and our military posture around the world. Yeah, in a world where politics are defined by nothing more than being in opposition to President Trump, even the promise and hope of bringing the troops home is suddenly un-American. 
The future ain't what it used to be, and the present ain't that great either. This is hell, but your future could be as a board operator here on This Is Hell. We are currently seeking new board ops to run the board, produce the live streaming show, and prepare the program for podcasts later that day and broadcast later in the week. Board operators are needed for our live show happening here Monday through Thursday beginning at 10 a.m. So you have to be here at our studios above Carrie's Lounge in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood, 2251 West Devon, 2250. 51 West Devon, up here on the second floor by 9.30 in the morning at the very latest. You will prep the show, contact the guest to make certain the connection is of high enough quality, and get us ready to broadcast. On air, you will interact with me as all the producers do, and you will actually do reads like the way Daphne reads The Hangover Cure every Monday. And as Richard will be reading your answers to this week's Question from Hell later today, we are looking for board operators who can work preferably weekly, but if but we are flexible, and if you want to work more need to work less, we can accommodate your schedule. This position comes with a very modest stipend, so keep that in mind as well. As a board operator here on This Is Hell, you will also have access to our studio for your own projects. So if you want to do your own podcast or just have some audio performance you are creating and would like to do it as in a professional studio, become a board operator here on This Is Hell. All you have to do is tell us you're interested and email me at chuck at thisishell.com. You can also email us your thoughts, comments, guest, and topic suggestions. Basically anything you want to at chuck at thisishell.com. And we do get anything including someone who emailed us yesterday with an all-caps, single-word subject line. And that single word is a word that crudely describes a part of the human anatomy. The entire email contained therein was, again in all caps, I love, and again, that slang word for a part of the human anatomy, again in all caps, I mean, I must admit it, I too do love that part of the human anatomy, but I am uncertain why whoever emailed me that thought did. Um, I mean, I'm not randomly emailing others about what parts of the human body I love. That would be weird. However, you can email us again, whatever you damn well please, apparently, to chuck at thisishell.com. And that's what Maddie did. Maddie writes, Hi, Chuck. Just wanted to offer some praise for a couple of especially good recent guests. And a suggestion of my own. First, Thomas Frank was great. He always is, but I've heard him a few times on this book tour, and your interview was definitely the best. I also really enjoyed your conversation with Wei Wang. They were an entertaining guest, and the subject was new to me, but so fascinating. Yeah, it's always a blast talking to Tom and learning something new. And Wei Wang blew my mind. That whole idea of metronormativity, especially in light of the urban-rural divide narrative we saw being crafted again around Election Day, I just found that fascinating. Maddie continues, my suggestion is to have Richard Seymour back on This Is Hell. He had an excellent piece in Salvage a couple of months back in mid-September on disaster nationalism that I would recommend to anyone trying to make sense of the current moment. Thanks and keep it up, Maddie. Maddie then sends a link to Richard's article from mid-September called Prepared for the Worst Disaster Nationalism. Richard writes, Disaster nationalism has thus far behaved in most cases like a simple contagion. With low commitment, low risks for involvement, and low thresholds for uptake, the pathogen has spread best through a social network with as many weak ties as possible and little of the network redundancy that comes with clusters of strong ties. 
The danger is that as solidaristic non-nationalist effects become folded into the mechanical habits of daily life, they create new social network structures that are both resilient to nationalism and conducive to more complex contagions. That is the plague that haunts disaster nationalism. So, Maddie, thanks for the heads up, because that writing by Richard is absolutely great. That article is fascinating. And even if we do not get him back on the show to talk about his article, and I'm hoping that we do, everyone should go check out his article at salvage.zone. It's Richard Seymour. And the article, again, prepared for the worst disaster nationalism. And a couple quick answers to some frequently asked questions we've received lately. First, if we announce that you are the winner of the question from hell, all you have to do is send your email address to us. Sorry, all you have to do is send your mailing address to us via email, chocolatethisishell.com, or via Facebook. Just send us your mailing address if you have won, and we will alert the people who mail out our stuff to get your prize to you as soon as possible. So if you win the question from hell, Email me at chuckatthisishell.com or send us a message via Facebook with your mailing address and we will send you your prize. And if you are interested in our merchandise or if you did win the question from hell, yes, we do mail to Canada. But if you are anywhere else overseas, tell us where you are and we will definitely work something out as we want to spread the message that this is hell globally. This is not the media. This is hell. Coming up on This is Hell, what happens when humans and non-humans collide? We'll have more of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, so, uh, what's for brunch? So, uh, what's for brunch? Leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. Tweet it to us. Email it to us. Chuck at thisishell.com. Our favorite answer to this week's question from hell gets the new gray on black This Is Hell t-shirt, which you can find right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show, live stream, podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show is Richard Norwood, live from the United States, where property has more rights than people. This is hell. Far too often when humans and nature have collided, the potential harm to non-humans was not considered by their human counterparts as they engaged in a colonialism that would dominate the planet and all its life. Here to take us on a guided tour of what happens when human and non-human life intersect, returning to This Is Hell, anthropologist Anit Singh, edited and curated Feral Atlas, the more-than-human Anthropocene, which she created along with Jennifer Dagger, Alder Kellerman Saxena, and Fei-Fei Zhao. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Anna. Thank you very much for having me on your show. Anna was on our show back in 2015 to talk about her then-just-published book, The Mushroom at the End of the World, on the possibility of life in capitalist ruins. An interview you can find right now at our website, thisishell.com, when you search on Anna's last name, Singh, T-S-I-N-G. Anna is professor of anthropology at the University of California, Santa Cruz, and is the recipient of a Guggenheim Fellowship and a Niels Bohr Professorship for a multi-year project on the Anthropocene. 
Now, I've got about 7,000 questions for you because I found this absolutely fascinating. And I only got into the, you know, just skimmed the surface of this site. It's just so much fun. And it, I have issues sometimes with uh, obsessive compulsive disorder. And this was not helping it because I was enjoying it so much. I couldn't put it down. I couldn't get away from it. So the Humanity Institute posted that the feral state stretches the concept of the map. The atlas shows how imperial and industrial infrastructures have had world-rippling effects on the ways humans and non-humans live together. We all know industrial and imperial processes have had a huge effect on life, both human and non-human. But to what extent do we realize that impact? Does that feral atlas, do maps make us somehow more aware of those relationships? And if so, how? In the feral atlas, uh, we've tried uh, to move away from everybody's expectation that a single map could encompass the whole world. So we've come up with a collection of maps that show processes in action at every kind of scale. And uh, we hope that those uh, representations will get people from the scale of uh, the sea lice on the scales of uh, salmon in salmon farming all the way to viewing the earth from outer space. That by putting all of these dynamics together to allow users to jump back and forth and see how they settle on top of each other, how they pile up, how they aggregate the kinds of effects that all of these processes have on each other, that we would get a sense of both the scope of the huge transformation of the earth and its dangers, but also of the weak spots where maybe we could intervene uh, to create at least some refuges for life on earth. So in in doing this project, in this format, what did you, I mean, I'm sure we could, you could probably answer this question for the next 75 minutes, but what did you learn? What did you realize about these transformations that you may not have realized before because of the format that this is in? There was a lot of learning for me that this project started very small. In fact, we were thinking of just a kind of lab report page for the project that I was working on. And then people, every time I went to a conference or a workshop, they'd rush up to me and they'd say, I have a feral atlas story for you. And the cases just uh, came on in piles. If we had uh, allowed the project to stay open, we might have twice as many cases. And many of them really blew my mind, ranging from the most kind of ordinary and perhaps uh, not important, but still mind-blowing, the fact that even after we chlorinate our water, there's a lot of little critters that don't die, and they're pooping in the water, uh, contaminating it with bacteria. So that clean water that we think we're uh, getting from the tap actually has a lot of stuff in it, to the hugest, uh, from uh, the relationship between the new wildfires that have you've uh, heard about in the Western US and the burning of fossil fuels to the carbon dioxide that's accumulating across the planet. So from tiny things to huge things, uh, they're all piling up and having side effects on each other. 
at the Stanford. This is a project also of Stanford University of Press, uh, University Press, and uh, at their page about your project, it states every event in human history has been a more than human event. When hunter gatherers burn the land, they cooperate with herbs that seed quickly and grasses that sprout after fires, attracting game. Inside us, intestinal bacteria make it possible for us to digest our food. Other things, living and non-living, make it possible to be human. Yet powerful habits of thought over the last centuries have made this statement less than obvious. With the arrival of the idea of the Anthropocene, we move away from such thinking to reconsider how human and non-human histories are inextricably intertwined. How and why does the Anthropocene reveal that human and non-human histories are intertwined? And how long have human and non-human histories been at least assumed to be disentangled? Is this idea that they are not intertwined relatively new? The idea that they're not intertwined came up in the last couple of hundred years with the development of the sciences in a way and a separation that comes out of a particular thread of enlightenment thought that on the one hand, humans have free will and consciousness and nature is some kind of a machine that we could get more and more control over. It's just that philosophy that went in to the boosterism of the last 200 years where uh, industrial elites and imperial conquerors created great infrastructure projects, believing that the effects were those of the planners, that whatever you saw in the blueprint was exactly what was going to happen. As a, as a result, they didn't pay any attention at all to the fact that, you know, when you burn fossil fuels, you uh, create this blanket of carbon dioxide across the atmosphere or that uh, that you introduce a lot of new species as part of your program of bringing Europe to the Americas, and a lot of the indigenous species might actually die off completely. So the philosophy and the practices are related to each other in a, an era of what you could call a certain kind of blindness to the effects that uh, industrial and imperial projects were having on life on earth, including human life. Was this blindness, was it intentional? Was the blindness caused by ignorance? Were there people at the time who were concerned about what the long-term impact could be of the burning of fossil fuels or the long-term impact could be of possibly transporting invasive species to new worlds? Yes, there have been people concerned all the time, but somehow the power of a particular kind of ideology that we should just move forward, that we continue to see today, for example, in the solutions to climate change that say, let's just build a big new infrastructure to reflect light back to outer space or put iron filings in the ocean. Each of these are proposed without any attention to what we call the feral effects, that is the ways that non-humans who haven't been authorized by the planners to get involved in these processes do with often very, very detrimental effects to life on Earth. Sometimes we see just the refusal to go against uh, best practices. Uh, one of our contributors who writes about how uh, the tremendous variety of Hawaiian tree snails is 
dying out that one species after another has been extirpated, in part because of the importation of a carnivorous snail called the rosy wolf snail to the Pacific Islands. And the people are continuing to import this carnivorous snail, even though they've uh, been told that about the extinctions that it's causing. So we do have cases of just bad faith, but other times it's a matter of just not thinking through the question of what will the effects of these projects be. So the Anthropocene, as in the time we are in today, is the period during which human activity has been the dominant influence on climate and the environment by definition the dominant human influence. But as humans dominate nature, by your estimation, do we lose control? And if so, what should that teach us about what our relationship with nature should be? We've certainly lost control at every point. And that's why we're facing the environmental catastrophes of our time. I think there's a clear message there that perhaps learning to live with, uh, non-humans might be a smarter way to live on earth than trying to control everything with giant infrastructures. How much more radically are environments being transformed in the Anthropocene? Is the current transformation in any way unique or unprecedented? Absolutely. I'm sure uh, many of your listeners have seen the figures about the um, extinction rates that are going on now, that in a hundred years, we're losing more species than in millions of years in past uh, epochs. So uh, the kinds of amount of dirt that's being moved by anthropogenic processes is so much greater now than even what was moved by the glaciers. So we have created a kind of uh, speed up of earth changing processes. And we have no idea what will be able to survive it. The site explains that these kind of, these things called tippers are modes of infrastructure work that radically transform more than human environments. They bring into being novel ecologies through metabolic rifts with earlier situations Seven one-syllable verbs, base words in the English language, signify kinds of work that are both ordinary and Anthropocene extraordinary in the tipping of social and ecological systems. Burn, crowd, dump, grid, pipe, smooth, and speed, and finally take. These are uh, what you call the modes of infrastructure that move, spread, uh, uh, f- uh, ferality, essentially. And you, on, on take, it states, the stories this atlas tells of take as a mode of infrastructure, mediated state change, are not about little old ladies hiding seeds in their luggage, still the common stereotype for the introduction of invasive species. How does that stereotype affect the way we view and understand invasive species when we just see them as the story of little old ladies who are carrying seeds around the world? I think one common misunderstanding is that all exotic species uh, are necessarily destructive. But some ecologists talk about a rule of 10, where out of every 10 species uh, you might bring into a new continent, only one might even survive. And only one out of 10 of those that survive might actually affect other species in any other way. So it's not 
a matter of just having new species around. It's the sheer scale of introductions uh, so that, for example, the um, the trade in live soils around the world, which there's really no excuse for, that every place on earth has soils. It's only the profits of certain kinds of nursery companies that would be shipping live soils. And they are full of pathogens and our quarantine practices only look for particular things that they know about. So since they have no idea what are in those soils, they just ship them in an unregulated way, bringing in thousands and thousands of new species every single day. And so within that scale of introductions, you know something's going to come in and start making a mess. So that's an example of what we mean by take. Right. Uh, Yet we view introduced species as being in the wild and not of human assistance. Usually that's the way that we, you know, have this uh, another stereotype. Are humans more responsible for introduced species than the wild? Is species ferality greater in the Anthropocene because there's greater assistance by humans? Absolutely. The number of, I mean, of course, species have always traveled around the world. All it took was a tsunami, for example, to bring some species from the northern hemisphere to the southern hemisphere. But now, every single day, with the kind of trade and traffic and the complete lack of regulations, we bring so many more uh, introduced species. And you can see this with uh, something like pathogens that kill plants, the diseases that kill plants. Plants have always had diseases and they've done pretty well, but they don't evolve quickly enough to withstand the barrage of new diseases that are coming in every single day from wooden shipping pallets, from these live soils I was talking about, from ornamental nursery plants, from so many different trade and commercial sources that uh, plants are really not doing well with this anthropogenic barrage. You mentioned live soils, and at another point you mentioned the transferring, the transport of live plants. When we look at the situation in Wuhan, it is at a live animal market, a wet market. How much is the problem that we are having with the move, with ferality, with the movement of viruses, with the movement of pathogens and pandemics and diseases that harm plants and animals alike? How much is the problem, the uh, focus that is happening right now within the business model of trading in live objects? Well, we could start with industrial chicken farms, which have been the main source of new flu viruses uh, since the time that they put hundreds of thousands of chickens, all very genetically similar, into a small enclosed space. In that case, it's like a testing Uh, place for viruses to come up with new strains of virus and to try them out until, of course, eventually they find one that not only kills chickens, but might kill humans too. So the industrial crowding of animals has been an incredibly important part of both the creation and spread of new diseases. And where we see this today is in the industrial mink uh, sector in Denmark, where at least the Danes had figured out that not only is this industrial crowding of minks spreading the coronavirus, but it's also allowing the mutation of new strains that are being sent back to humans. So this industrial crowding, it becomes 
a laboratory for the pathogens to figure out new, more virulent forms. Uh, so as long as we crowd livestock uh, together like that, we are guilty of creating new kinds of diseases that are going to come and get us. Anna, this is the second day in a row that the story in Denmark with the minks has come up. Yesterday it came up in our conversation with Georgos Kallis and Sarah Paulson on their book, The Case for Degrowth. Yet I haven't seen, I mean, I saw a story in the New York Times about it, but I haven't seen this in the larger broadcast media outlets where most people, where the largest audience gets their news how important is this story about minks in Denmark, not only related to the pandemic, but in the case of your book, Inferality? Well, let me uh, refer your listeners to one particular uh, field report in the Feral Atlas to get us started. And it's by biologist Scott Gilbert. And he's writing about what happens when you transfer elements of holobionts across species. Now, holobiont just means that group of different species that evolves and lives together. If you could consider our intestinal bacteria, which help us digest our food, that's part of our holobiont. But sometimes these holobionts switch. And for example, he tells the story of a kind of beetle uh, that... Uh, lives together with a particular fungus. And when uh, North American beetles were transferred to China, a different fungus came to live with the beetles and that one kills the trees and it's being reimported uh, because it's not, it's not illegal because it's an American beetle. So they bring it back to North America with this new uh, part of its holobiont that is an element of different species that lives together and you get the death of all these trees. In just that way, the coronavirus, uh, as it switches species, can form new mutations. That it appears that the uh, coronavirus that's attacking us so hard might have come partially from bats. And that as it switched species, uh, it changed its properties. Bats happen to be really good at living with viruses. So they have all kinds of viruses without it necessarily hurting that much. But they've this particular virus figured out a way to live with humans. This brings me back to the mink story. So the minks are suffering and dying from this coronavirus, but at the same time, because they have a different metabolic system, the virus can take uh, advantage of the minks to come up with new variants. And in fact, they believe that new variants that are even easier to transmit might have been developed among the mink population. So this is very bad news for humans because humans are getting the virus that's been uh, transformed by staying with the minks. We are speaking with anthropologist Anna Singh, who edited and curated Feral Atlas, The More Than Human Anthropocene, which Anna created along with Jennifer Dager, Alder Kellerman Saxena, and Fei-Fei Zhao. Anna is professor of anthropology at the University of California, Santa Cruz, and she was on our show way back in 2015 to talk about her then-just-published book, which I found immensely entertaining, The Mushroom at the End of the World, on the possibility of life in capitalist ruins. And you can hear that interview by going to our website, This Is Hell and searching on her last name, that's Singh, T-S-I-N-G. 
The Feral Atlas states that the fact that the world has been hit by successive waves of biological invasion is a product of powerful human infrastructural developments involving the resources of imperial and commercial elites. These developments have been able to introduce so many species that at least a few turn out to be serious problems. Non-human invasions are tightly coupled with human projects of conquest, whether political or commercial. How important are those powerful infrastructural developments to imperial and commercial elite success? Is the success of imperial and commercial elites dependent upon biological invasions, whether those invasions are intentional or not? Part of the problem is that for the commercial elites, trying to make their enterprises as cheap as possible is how they are operating. So if there's not a regulation that they have to follow, they will just ignore the consequences. For example, for many years, ships uh, just dumped ballast water, that is water that was taking up in one part of the world, in other parts of the world. So they uh, dumped with them all the little animals that had been sucked up in one part of the world um, and they moved to other parts of the world. Now there's some regulations about ballast water, but ships do their best to just tow the line as much as they can get away with. And so the number of introduced species, such as jelly organisms of various sorts, tube worms that have been carried across the world by the ballast water of ships is enormous. That's just one example of how industry works by pretending not to notice the kind of collateral costs. And on those collateral costs, just as I, this is obviously anecdotal, but uh, I go to a lake in northern Michigan every year, and uh, this year somebody gave me a gift subscription to the weekly newspaper that was up there, that's up there. And around Labor Day, they had these Trump boat parades at this lake, and the lake depends upon tourism. And a lot of the locals were really afraid that what was going to happen was what had happened at the same lake 20 years earlier when somebody dumped their bilge into the lake and they infected the entire area. It's the largest uh, inland lake in in, uh, Michigan, so it's a pretty big lake. Um, They dumped their Japanese milfoil in the lake, and the Japanese milfoil completely clogged the entire lake. There were stories of ducks actually walking across the lake because it had been so clogged with milfoil. So now, here we are 20 years later, and the residents of the area were very upset about this Trump boat parade. They were afraid people were going to bring bilge and more invasive species. How much less worried should people be today than they were 20 years ago of those kinds of invasive species that people are certainly not doing in any intentional way, but maybe they are more enlightened today, maybe the rules have changed, so that your environment is far more safe from invasive species. Should we feel any better than we did 20 years ago? Alas, no. Uh, As I was saying, Uh, all the quarantines only look for specific things that the regulators know what they are. And so most of these invasive species, we don't know what they are in advance until they start destroying things. Worse yet, the cascade of one invasion after another is hurting ecosystems around the world. For example, in Feral Atlas, we have a report on sudden oak death, Uh, a disease that was brought in by the ornamental nursery trade to California and then has spread to all of the Western states of the U.S. Uh, This kills a whole lot of trees. And then as they die, then other pathogens 
are also become more and more important. So alas, we should be more nervous than ever about the unregulated state of pathogen transmission around the world. You mentioned this fascinating concept. You write that the uh, the atlas describes how European settlers often brought their favored home species with them, the new worlds they made on other continents. These included not just economic species, but also ornamental plants, as well as animals that allowed them to recreate European pleasures of hunting and fishing. Historian Thomas Dunlap calls this process making the land familiar. To you, what is that idea of making the land familiar? What does it reveal to you about colonialism and the way that process works with nature? What do we miss when we do not recognize the ecological challenges to the continental America caused by the imposition of a European natural environment upon our Well, I gave the example before of the disappearing Hawaiian tree snails. The reason this carnivorous snail that is killing the tree snails was introduced was because of European home gardens with flowers or maybe a few vegetables. It wasn't even commerce in this case, but a different invasive snail called the African giant snail had been introduced at some point and had gotten free and was hurting people's garden flowers and vegetables. And so they introduced this carnivorous snail to save the settler colonial gardens that were part of people's idea of what good living was. And then, of course, the uh, species that was introduced to get rid of a different invasive species became itself the worst of the invasive species, at least from the perspective of the Hawaiian tree snails. So all over the world, in fact, they bring in one uh, species for aesthetics or hunting or fishing, such as uh, rabbits in Australia, and that turns into an incredible mess. And so then they bring in another species, such as mongoose in Australia to try and see if it would get rid of the rabbits. And that becomes a problem on top of that. So uh, to save the aesthetics of settler colonial landscapes, one species after another gets introduced and um, they end up wreaking havoc on local ecologies. In fact, if we're talking about Australia, the introduction of the poisonous cane toad supposedly to eat beetles on sugarcane plantations, which had been introduced by the uh, British settlers. Uh, but the, the toads never touched the sugarcane beetles, but instead went out and have now poisoned off a lot of animals in northern Australia, much to the detriment of um, indigenous people uh, who depended on those local animals for both their understandings of what it meant to be in the world and their diet. And one of the things we're very proud of in Feral Atlas is an indigenous Yolngu artist from Northern Australia has drawn a painting of the, uh, the demise of the monitor lizards that were part of his clan history uh, from the poisonous cane toads. And I want to make sure we stress that. This is a multimedia atlas. There are paintings, there are maps, there are films, there are games. It's really in a completely different way of thinking about an atlas. And I know we have a lot of listeners out there who are always telling me we should have this person on the show to talk about an atlas or maps because people find those really fascinating. This is 
just an incredibly great informational and educational tool when it comes to the Anthropocene. One of the things that you also point out is that in the cases that you were just discussing, the introduced organisms never accomplished what they were supposed to. Indeed, according to some of our contributors, this is hardly surprising since introductions, especially by entrepreneurs, have so often been conducted in either ignorance or sheer defiance of available research. Instead, these species plowed their way through the countryside, forging trails of destruction. It is hard not to see introducers' disregard for caution as a feature of the colonial legacy. So is the concept of introducing species not necessarily the flawed concept, but the flawed concept is colonialism, which can lead to disregard of harm when introducing species? Is the problem not species introduction, but colonialism? I think that's true, that when those two things go together, that is colonialism, species introduction as part of a colonial project, that the vulnerability of indigenous peoples and indigenous uh, non-humans is not considered important. That indeed, some of the time, uh, species are introduced in order to get rid of indigenous communities, both human and non-human. Uh, we have uh, a field report about Panama, where African grasses were introduced by cattle ranchers in or- because the grasses themselves, which have this rhizome structure of roots, hold back the forest. And the forest is the ecology that's needed by the indigenous people in that area. So all by themselves, these pasture grasses, which were introduced for cattle, hold back the possibility of the renewal of indigenous communities, both human and non-human. And in that case, they knew it. Right, exactly. They knew that that was going to be the case. And uh, the Feral Atlas also states that African swine fever, according to Bettina Stetzer, is spread not only by wild boar, but also by the Central European commercial pork trade. And as you were saying earlier, Scott Gilbert writes of the transfer of red turpentine beetles with their associated uh, pine-killing fungi with wood shipments between the U.S. and China. He compares the shifting holobion dynamics with that of the coronavirus that has moved from bats to humans. The Atlas continues in the 1980s, exotic comb jellies entered the Black Sea in the ballast water of commercial ships, overwhelming anchovies and threatening fish life. Researcher Bettina Fosch and her colleagues explained the uh, historical conjunctures through which comb jellies gained the upper hand. In each of these cases and more, industrial commerce has brought its companions into worlds unprepared for the onslaught of more than human threats. Industrial commerce is an infrastructure of rapid species introduction. So it's not only climate change. What do we miss when it is reported that it is climate change that is moving species around without the role of industrial commerce mentioned when it comes to species movement? We miss a lot. Uh, For example, there have been a lot of estimates about forest change uh, in relation to climate change, but almost all of them entirely neglect the role of the new diseases that are decimating forests, that the estimates are going to be entirely wrong if you don't look at these new anthropogenically transmitted uh, um, tree diseases. So it's just one example among many where we need to look at the interactions across these phenomena, and that's what Feral Atlas tries to do. And, And I do want to stress the thing that you said, that we're trying very hard to come up with a site that's accessible, beautiful, and uh, 
full of variety and interest. So while we're telling many terrible stories, we want people to be able to read them with a sense of awe and wonder as well as dread, uh, that we want people to get involved in the details because we believe that the key to understanding the Anthropocene is to look at all of these different cases and perhaps to think about which ones show us even small things that we could do that might make a difference. So one of the things that you also stress, not only just colonialism, but the impact on the indigenous, as we have been mentioning on today's show, what is, and, and, the, and not only just the impact on the indigenous, indigenous access, um, actions and protest movements against resource extraction that is happening all over the Americas, in Canada with the Wet'suwet'en and here in the United States as we saw it with the Dakota Access Pipeline Project. What is missed in our understanding of, okay, here in the States, the Dakota Access Pipeline Project, when we do not see it as a way to control the indigenous, to control water? as an act of colonialism against indigenous, as colonialism continuing? What do we miss when we only see this as a protest against a pipeline? I think it was Naomi Klein who's mentioned that uh, in struggles against the overuse of fossil fuels, uh, all of us are indebted, indebted in, in, the, in the Americas, are indebted to uh, indigenous people's work because only indigenous people have the ability to work outside the property system and to use uh, treaties and traditional knowledge and other forms that don't depend on being inside the property system to lead uh, protests against the uh, extraction of, of fossil fuels. So I think everyone in the world, whatever their immigrant or indigenous status needs to be paying a lot of attention to where indigenous struggles might lead us. There's just a couple more questions I have for you. And I know this is a little bit off uh, track from what we were talking about before, but I just had to touch on this before we let you go. The Atlas states the European cultivation of exotic crops and new world plantations created a new model, not only for commercial agriculture, but also for the coordinated discipline of humans and non-humans. Ironically, this model was based on an insidious and unfortunately profitable misunderstanding. Owners and managers convinced themselves that enslaved labor would be best deployed amidst ecological simplifications, that is, in meticulously coordinated monocrop agriculture. Coerced workers could be disciplined to focus on one task at a time, thus outlawing managers believed the time-consuming and undisciplined work of multi-species care. So how, to what extent was the monocrop culture that we experience today, that we see in industrial agriculture... To what extent is that monocrop culture that a lot of people have been pointing towards, that your work points towards as a potential avenue for the pandemic, for pathogens, for virus? How much is that monocrop culture that we are still embracing today a result of slavery? Is this the legacy of slavery that we're trying to keep intact by keeping industrial agriculture and monocrop culture and agriculture intact? I, I think so. And I'm relying a lot on the work of African-American scholars such as Sylvia Winters and Catherine McKintrick. Uh, I, I believe that uh, this, the plantation owners designed these plantations because they thought they worked with uh, 
with a, a system involving kidnapping and enslaving people. Uh, as it said in the paragraph that you read, uh, enslaved people actually had a lot of botanical knowledge and care, but the uh, plantation owners designed it as if they didn't and could focus only on one thing at a time, or perhaps that discipline could focus only on one thing at a time. And we've really inherited this. When you think about the work that machines do, we tend to say, oh, machines replace human labor. But actually, in these monocrop fields, machines replace enslaved labor, that is, entirely disciplined labor that can focus on only one thing at a time. We have designed machines to continue the heritage of slavery with all its many facets of how non-humans and humans were brought into a system of disregard for their well-being. So what are farmers today? What I was reading at uh, Feral Atlas, uh, it would seem like all all farmers are now are firefighters. They're just people who are putting out fires when something happens that human and non-human forms come in contact and something negative happens. Is that all a farmer is anymore? Somebody who puts out ferality fires? Well, in the United States, so much farming, and you really see it in chicken farming and pig farming is controlled by a few giant multinational corporations. And alas, even the people who own the land and are so proud of their family farms are in debt and in contract to uh, the corporations who require them to feed the animals at a particular schedule, to use a particular dietary mix, to do their practices in a way that doesn't necessarily uh, help, that forces the farmers to work really hard for very, very low uh, amounts of money considering how hard they work and uh, does not contribute necessarily to the well-being of either the animals or the people. But you could say the same for plants. Yes, definitely. Uh, Anna, uh, first of all, I got to tell you, uh, when we had you on the show back in 2015 to discuss your book, The Mushroom at the End of the World, on the possibility of life in capitalist ruins, I was really concerned before that interview because I found the book incredible. I just, I really liked the writing. I found the concepts and the topics really, really engaging. Uh, But I was very nervous because you're obviously a very accomplished academic, and I was really nervous to be interviewing you on a topic that was so outside of my understanding. And now here we are today, and I was a little bit nervous again having you on the show to talk about Feral Atlas, the more than human Anthropocene, because this is such a huge project. But I just want to thank you again for being back on our show, because this is not only a really engaging project, but just fascinating, and I really enjoyed it. But that said, as we do with all of our guests, our final question for you, as we do with all of our guests, I promise, is the question from hell. The question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. The Atlas states, poor and non-white areas are rarely monitored for environmental toxins. As a result, communities already dealing with issues such as poverty, urban decline, or ongoing struggles for control of ancestral lands also face the greatest risk of environmental injustice. The willful and unregulated dumping of harmful materials responds to a logic that discounts the value of non-monetary environmental harms. 
Yesterday, we were speaking with Georgos Kalas and Susan Paulson about their new book, The Case for Degrowth. One day we're on, we talked about the monetizing of everything and why they believe that does not work as a sustainable political economic system. How can values be changed so the non-monetary environment still has value? Is it possible with the political economy we currently have today, how far would giving value to those non-monetary environmental harms go toward protecting us from pandemics and climate change? Uh, We're in such a difficult case that all... um proposals to do something different seem to me to be worth thinking about. I'm not sure what you're asking about. Uh, Carbon credits, things like that, is that what you're asking about giving monetary value to things or not giving monetary value to things? I miss that. I think just value in general. It doesn't have to be monetary. How can we give value? Yeah. Yes. I see. I see. Yes. So I think, I think, uh, we're in a position where we need to be thinking about refuges for humans and non-humans to create livability. And that's a kind of value uh, that, and that if we think those refuges can just be a human in a spaceship, we are crazy because if we've learned anything in the last few decades, it's that humans and non-humans need each other, that we cannot live without all the plants and animals and bacteria and fungi that we live with. So that as we're giving value, we need to make sure that we imagine a world where there's livable ecologies, and these are going to be more than human ecologies. Am I getting at what you're? Yeah, getting, definitely. You're it, it made me. It actually made me think that you know we've had a lot of people talking on our show about how humans have to be working more collectively in order to address pandemics and climate change. But I think it's it's a fascinating point that humans and non-humans alike have to be working collectively in order to mm-hmm. best address pandemics and climate change. Anna, this is. Another fascinating work by you. And again, I want to tell everybody they should all read your book, The Mushroom at the End of the World on the Possibility of Life in Capitalist Ruins. We have been speaking with anthropologist Anat Singh, who edited and curated Feral Atlas, The More Than Human Anthropocene, which Anna created along with Jennifer Dager, Alder Kellerman Saxena, and Fei Fei Zhao. Thank you so much for being back on our show. Really a pleasure. This is an absolutely fantastic project, and I cannot thank you enough for being on our show today to discuss it. Thank you. All right. Take care, Anna. Bringing you bong-hitting journalism since 1996, this is hell. And if you're someone like me, I would strongly suggest when looking at the Feral Atlas that you have a bong nearby because, Jesus Christ, is that fun and depressing to navigate while stoned out of your mind. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is... Richard Norwood. This week's question from Hal is, so, uh, so, uh, what's for brunch? What's for brunch? And the image Alex shared to go with that question is a protester resistance march from back in 2017, holding a sign that says, if Hillary Clinton was president, we'd all be at brunch. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question mail wins our new gray and black This Is Hell t-shirt. You can check out all our new gray and black merchandise at thisishell.com when you click on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question mail at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But we have to have your answer by the end of tomorrow's show. Following Jeff Dorch in the Moment of Truth, we will be announcing this week's winner. This week, Jeff leans on survivor bias. 
Richard, please share some more of our listeners' answers to this week's question from hell. I'm a little... I guess I need to ask you what our policy is on some of these answers. <laughs> is um, it about profanity? Well, no, some of them are a little mean-spirited, but the, this one is... The question is so what's for brunch and I kind of, and they kind of answered it where's brunch so I'm not sure if it's really appropriate. <laughs> All right, let's move on <laughs> to that one then. <laughs> I think you know the one I'm talking about. Uh, I'll check later okay. on. So Jack says crow. <laughs> Jeff G says if Hillary was president we'd be dead from the nuclear war she started with Russia by now but yeah. tacos definitely tacos <laughs> Will G says great green gobs of greasy grimy go for guts uh, mutilated monkey meat chopped blah, um, okay, uh, yeah, 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 okay. Yeah. you want me to stop that yes please <laughs> you want to stop I can tell you want to stop as well Richard John says bandages and ice packs for brunch after those people beat it <laughs> oh god Nick says, wake and bake. All right. Andrew says, flint tap water mimosas. <laughs> I hear they're full of protein. <laughs> <laughs> or iron. I, don't know. <laughs> I think that's what it is. You're right. <laughs> uh, so what's for brunch? Laura says, just plain toast because we still can't afford the avocados. <laughs> Nick Nico says, a few mimosas and a smooth transition to a second Trump administration, or at least to 5 p.m. and wondering where the hell the day went after that 1 p.m. impromptu nap. <laughs> That's true. Wally says, hot tongue and a cold shoulder. Ugh. James says, let them eat war. <laughs> Adam A. says, if Ramses winds up in a sleepy Joe's cabinet... I'll be thirsty for establishment blood. <laughs> e. Mary's. Oh, my God. If Rahm Emanuel ends up in Joe <clears throat> Biden's cabinet, good Lord, you'll be hearing a popping sound around the city as heads explode. Exactly. So what's for brunch? Mark A. says, slow roasted bill. <laughs> and Warren says, the wailing of the defeated. <laughs> Justin sent us a little nice little animated gif of Kellogg's Corn Pops. <laughs> All right. Corn Pop. I love the Corn Pop reference. And Mason W. says, Lenin hanged the capitalist that sold him the rope. We're eating the capitalist that sold us the plate. Well, thank you for the answer. That's last week's winner of the question from Helen Mason. <laughs> <laughs> so what's for brunch? Tyler says, I mean, this line is really long. I thought there was bread at the end of it. All right. <laughs> Martin says, what's for brunch? Bite and O's. Cereal with a nice tall glass of orange juice that reminds me of Trump's weird skin tone, <laughs> including a side order, side order of French toast that's more burnt than Bernie's. Sanders presidential hopes for an extra dollar 75 you can get a side order of sausage to remind you of dick army the because nothing says brunch like mental images of an army of marching penises <laughs> wow didn't know that was going to end in the word penises <laughs> nick says the usual oatmeal with brown sugar and butter a side of fresh strawberries a 12 ounce glass of freshly squeezed orange juice endless cup of robustly brewed coffee and eggs florentine Jesus, I want to go to his house. I know, exactly. <laughs> and our Jeffrey says, prep pepper spray with egg sandwich. <laughs> is that it? That is it. Thanks. Thank God. Thanks. <laughs> 
Uh, Richard, who is on tomorrow's show beginning at our normal time, 10 a.m. Chicago time, here at thisishell.com. Yes, tomorrow, Thursday, we have Polish politician Zofia Malisz on Poland's anti-abortion push and the statement, our bodies, our lives, our country, the world. Of course, we'll have the moment of truth from Jeff Dorch. And this week, Jeff leans on survivor bias. Thanks to everyone who has answered this week's question from hell so far and has supported This Is Hell by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you can find all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell, including all of our merchandise, like the whole new gray on black line of truckers' caps, face masks, t-shirts, and tote bags. You can also support This Is Hell by becoming a subscriber to our weekly Patreon podcast that has a new monologue from me every week and a classic archived interview that cannot be found anywhere else online. All you have to do is sign up right now at patreon.com slash this is hell, just like Adam, Brianna, and Jane did this week. Thanks, Adam, Brianna, and Jane for becoming our newest Patreon patrons by going to patreon.com slash this is hell. They will each receive this is hell's advertising stickers in the mail and a special exclusive Patreon patron only discount on all of our this is hell merchandise. Tune in to tomorrow's show streaming live 10 a.m. Chicago time at this is hell.com or listen to the podcast posted shortly after our live stream. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show podcast live stream host Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show is Richard Norwood. Special thanks to to Richard and our guest Anna Singh with my most sincere apologies. Yes, I am a white dude, but keep in mind I'm also a race and gender traitor. This is hell. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, Visit thisishell.com.